morning. I'll be reading the scripture for today's message. It comes from Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 25. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. There was during the day, this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel, but was, was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, and they came to the iron gate leading into the city, it opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put in his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the word of the Lord. So before we jump into our text this morning, I just want to say a quick word, really following up what Ben was saying. And I think, uh, you know, we, we approach our church gathering really appropriately, and we gather to meet with each other. We gather to hear God's word, 
been received from the Lord, respond to the Lord with worship. But I just want to say we also come to meet with him. Uh, We come to meet with God, for he is present with us. Uh, As two or more are gathered, he is here with us. And uh, to remember that, that he is among us right now, uh, is good news to us. And so let's approach him uh, now in prayer as we get ready to, to dive into his word. Lord, thank you so much that you promise that as we draw near to you, you draw near to us. And you desire to be with your people. And we're humbled by the fact that you would desire such a thing. And we want to honor you as you reside with us this morning. And we want to honor your word. We want to sit at your feet. And so we pray that you would uh, teach us, Lord. Bring to light that which we do not see. Holy Spirit, move among us and touch our hearts in the ways that we need it. Convict us where we need it. Encourage our hearts where we need it with your word and with your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I was a golf caddy growing up. I uh, caddied at a golf club through high school, and then uh, after college, as I was preparing to go to his mansion, I, gol- or I caddied at a very high-end country club. Uh, these, these members of this country club are members at all over the country, even. Uh, very wealthy, powerful people, and here I am, this uh, caddy that's carrying their clubs. And just to give you a window into what that culture is like, um, it's customary as a caddy to compliment your golfer any chance you get. No matter what, flattery is the way to go. So even uh, the moment they hit a drive off the tee, the, the, the customary thing is to say, good ball, way to go. That's just where you want it to go. Or, or they, they miss a putt even. Say that, well, that was a terrible green. That was really hard. So flattery is all over. Sometimes the golfers would even, they'd hit poorly and then they'd just kind of talk themselves up in response. And the way of a caddy is to agree at all times. It was a matter of balancing being really flattering without betraying the truth. And why'd we do this? Because they were paying us. We wanted to get good tips. And it was, it was the way of the culture, kind of manipulative a little bit, huh? That was the culture. So these, these wealthy, powerful, very powerful golfers tended to have a little bit of an inflated sense of self, and the caddy was there to agree with that and make sure they remembered it. And as we're witnessing Herod in this passage, we're going to highlight Herod. As we see him, we're going to see similar dynamics albeit in much more extreme ways than a golfer. And over the past few weeks, as we've been walking through the book of Acts, we've seen the gospel moving outward in a horizontal manner to unlikely places and unlikely people. And in our text this morning, we're going to see the church interact vertically with the authority above them. In this story, we see a tale of two kings, if you will. And the clash that they experience. It's a story about when a foolish, fallen king meets the king of kings. And all that comes of it. 
And throughout the New Testament, specifically in the gospel narratives, we hear about Herod. All through the gospel and even into the book of Acts, we hear Herod did this, and the church interacted with Herod in this way. Just to be clear, this is not one Herod throughout this story, but a family of Herods, considered the Herodian dynasty of Herod kings. And they reigned in Jerusalem for nearly 150 years. So our Herod in this passage is one of those Herods. And the Herod family consistently opposed Christ and his church. So our Herod this morning, his grandpa, we see in Matthew 2, trying to kill baby Jesus as he hears about the prophecy. His uncle Herod, we see uh, in Matthew 14, he beheaded John the Baptist and was a part of uh, the trial of Jesus in Luke 23. And later on, the Herod in our passage, his son is going to be a part of Paul's trial in Acts 23. But why did these Herods oppose the church? And the answer to that question can be summed up in one word, and that's power. The Herods wanted power. And the power that they had, they wanted to hold on to, and they wanted to accumulate more and more of it. In their pride, power was the prize. And that's the way that it is with all fallen kings, and yet the more that one gets of it, the more terrifying it is to lose it. So fear grips the power hungry, like these kings. And power, strength, plus fear, plus self-centeredness is an incredibly dangerous combination. And we see this in the Herods. They are a set of dangerous kings. Anything that threatened their power was feared and needed to be destroyed. So you see grandpa, granddaddy Herod, He's terrified of this prophecy of a coming king. He felt threatened by it. And so he kills innocent babies as a result to snuff it out. The Herod in Matthew 14 didn't like John the Baptist because of the threat that his ministry posed to his rule. So he wanted to kill him. In their fear, fallen kings do not use their authority for love, but to control. And there's two primary ways that anyone can control in their life. Appeasement and domination. And we see each of these in the Herod clan, and oftentimes they're working in conjunction with one another. People are pawns on their road to power. And they control their pawns either by making them happy or making them scared or doing away with them altogether. And the Herod in our text displays these fallen means of control in his reign as king. In that day, the Jews were the majority. And like any fallen king who wants to keep his power, the majority is key. You want to keep the majority happy in order to maintain power. So the Jews were a big deal to Herod. But in reality, the Jews didn't like the Herod clan. They were Romans. They were pagan. They were unclean. And so Herod, again, attempting to gather power, wanted to appease the Jews. He wanted to make the Jews like him. And so he would do things like practice Jewish law. And over time, he accumulated the, somewhat of the approval of the Jews. 
And so he desperately wanted to hold on to that peace and that approval. And so when this minority group of Christians start causing a ruckus with his beloved Jews, he didn't like it. So he imprisons James. He puts him to death. He flexes his muscle, so to speak. He's a bully. And in it, he simultaneously appeases the Jews and intimidates the church in order to keep the peace and secure his power. So the Christians are pawns that he's willing to sacrifice to get what he wants. But he doesn't really care about the Jews. He cared no more about the Jews than he did for the Christians. Each of them are means to the end of his own glory. He just uses them in different ways. And when he sees that the execution of James pleased the Jews, he wanted to do it again. So he imprisons Peter, sets his execution for the following day. He doubles the guards and puts him in the first century equivalent of a maximum security prison. You can get a level of the, the level of fear in Herod. For if Peter were to escape, the Jews would have been furious. And as we read in Acts 5, there was a group of Christians that had already been freed from prison miraculously. So Herod wasn't taking any chances. He was doing all he could to make sure that didn't happen again. And we read that Peter was imprisoned during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was the Passover, which was the feast that celebrated God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. Luke is doing something intentional here. In some ways, he's displaying Herod as a new pharaoh who enslaved Egypt because he was afraid of their numbers and what they meant for his rule, the threat they posed. Herod, in this way, is driven by fear. He's hungry for power. And a lot like Pharaoh, he has an incredibly inflated ego. And we get a glimpse of that level of pride as we get to the last section of Acts 12, as he deals with these people of Tyre and Sidon. We read that Herod was angry with these people. Maybe they had done something to offend him, which would make a lot of sense. An insecure, powerful, prideful authority figure is often easily offended. And so maybe they did something to offend him. Nevertheless, they were at odds with each other. And yet Herod had power over their food supply. So it was very important for these people to garner approval from him. So they eagerly seek peace. They eagerly seek reconciliation with Herod. They, they go around and they try and convince Blastus to help them. They plead with him. And Herod comes out to them and gives this speech, presumably giving them what they ask for. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian at the time, recounts this interaction like this. He says, Herod put on a robe made of silver throughout, of quite wonderful weaving, and entered the theater at break of day. Then the silver shone and glittered wonderfully as the sun's first rays fell on it, and its resplendence inspired a sort of fear and trembling in those who gazed at it. Immediately, his flatterers called out from various directions in language which boded him no good, for they invoked him as a god. Be gracious to us, they cried. Hitherto we have reverenced you as a human being, but henceforth we confess you to be of more than mortal nature. 
They move from pleading with him in fear to declaring that he's a God, for he's given them what they needed and what they wanted. And Herod says nothing in response, and in so doing, he receives and accepts and agrees with this declaration of divinity. In this way, Herod is the premier poser. He parades as a god and displays the epitome of what a fool is. In the scriptures, a fool is someone who says, there is no God. So what does it then mean that the people here and Herod himself are declaring that he is one? Supreme folly. His power over the people of Tyre and Sidon had garnered him the glory that he longed for. And yet he had to force them to give it to him. They don't love him here. They praise him because they fear him and doubt whether he will give them what they need. They praise him because if they didn't, they wouldn't have eaten. Again, Herod is using his power for himself. And his people are pawns in his own play in which he's the star. And we consider ourselves far from this situation. It's easy to push it into the first century and leave it there. But are we? Our nation's leaders today play that same political game in the same way that the leaders all over the world play it. They wheel and deal. They scratch this person's back over here. They intimidate these people over here. And we can even be like the people of Tyre and Sidon who lean on a fallen man or woman as one who will restore our fortunes and save us from our national plight. And even more, we tend to actually prefer a Herod who's on our side, who can flex his muscle for us and our cause, who'll be a bully for us. Even more, to bring it a little bit closer to home, are we not like Herod? Are we so different? We may not have a kingdom of lots of people, but we do have a family. We have a group of friends. We have a workplace, co-workers. And like Herod, we can long to be the master of our own domain. We like to be our own king. We want to be our own king. We boast in our own strength. That might not be overt. That very often is quite subtle. We want to be self-sufficient and known as capable. We resist asking for help. We can see people as players in our own story. You may not lock a person in prison like Herod did with Peter, but can we not snap at a loved one because they interrupt our comfort or the way we want our lives to go? Do we not get irritable when we realize we're weak and seen as weak? And when someone harms us, can we not imprison them with unforgiveness and make them work, albeit in subtle ways, to get back into our good graces? We are not so unlike Herod here. And yet this piece of Acts, this narrative, this story in Acts is not just about Herod. His hunger for power and his opposition to the church, which was ruthless. Running in the background of this narrative 
which we need to see, is a story about another king whose posture echoes that of Psalm 2, which I want to read for us. Psalm 2, 1 to 6 says this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is Herod. This is Herod. He had risen up against the Lord and his anointed. He had committed the high treason of naming himself as God. Herod sat on his throne, lapping up the praise of his people that he had garnered through manipulation and coercion. And the king of kings was sitting on his throne and laughed at Herod's folly and sends an angel of the Lord to strike him dead. And he's eaten by worms. What a way to go, right? In Acts 12, we see crystal clearly that the church is not and never was and never will be in the hands of Herod or any other fallen evil king, but is in the hands of the king of kings, the living God, our Jesus Christ. And God the king vindicates the glory of his great name by desecrating Herod's. It's severe, displays his sovereign, holy power. And whereas Herod kills James to preserve his limited power in hopes of getting more, God kills Herod to display his infinite power in the fragility of Herod's. And consider what the people would have thought as this happens. They're praising Herod. They're they're adoring the glory of this silver robe that's almost shining like an angel. And they're lauding his eloquent words of wisdom. And boom, he dies. What What would they have said? Well, I feel pretty stupid right now. Their folly had been exposed. Herod's folly had been exposed. The one they named a god was dead. However, God, the king, was not, and he displayed it to be so. And the church knew that. Earlier in the story, they stand in contrast to the people of Tyre and Sidon who were afraid of Herod and publicly pled with him for peace. The disciples may have feared Herod as Peter was in prison, but they feared the Lord more, and their fear of the Lord fueled their faith. Notice that their response to their fear and their powerlessness as as James was just killed and Peter was imprisoned is not public protest to Herod saying, you can't do this or we need you to do this. Please, please do this to Herod. They don't respond with public protest. They respond with private prayer to the king of kings. They earnestly sought the Lord on behalf of Peter, trusting that their king was higher than Herod and that he loved them and was able 
to do something. They prayed to Christ, not because they feared that he wouldn't give them what they asked for, but because they knew that he would and that he could. And God hears their prayers. As Peter sits in his maximum security cell, maybe solitary confinement, an angel of the Lord appears and strikes him on the side. Unlike the angel that struck Herod dead, this one strikes Peter awake. And he says in this very human, grounded kind of way, hey, get on some shoes, get on some pants, and let's go. And they walk right out the front door without even touching it. All the barriers that Herod put in place to control and quell the church, not just these closed gates, not just these prison doors, but all barriers, Christ walked right through seemingly without any effort at all. Herod's power is puny in comparison to the power of Christ. And in a moment, everything changed. Impending death turned to joy and hope. And all of it, again, happened immediately following this Passover feast. It is like Luke is showing us that as God had delivered his people from the hands of Pharaoh, here he's doing the same thing with Peter. He broke his bonds. He opened the gate. And just like the Jews who didn't do anything except just walk through the Red Sea, Peter doesn't even know what's happening. He isn't even lucid. He, he thinks it's a dream or a vision of some kind which is further evidence that this is God who is doing something. God does what he wants to do. And the church is along for the ride. And it's so outlandish that despite the fact that the church is earnestly praying for Peter, earnestly seeking the Lord, they think the servant girl is crazy. The good news that they asked for, they look at and say is lunacy to them. And in reality, they display that They're the lunatics, not the servant girl. And this passage radiates the power of our king who reigns over the kings of this world. But what do we make of verse 2? We read, and he killed James, the brother of John, by the sword. Peter gets rescued Herod, this guy that's committing high treason against the king of kings, gets totally struck dead. But what about James? The God who could do all that, couldn't he have saved James? What's up with that? We need to face those kinds of questions that arise out of the Bible. How do we reckon with the reality that sometimes it seems like evil triumphs? Sometimes it seems like the wicked prosper at the hands, despite the fact that the church is the one who's submitting to the Lord. And there isn't an easy answer to this. And honestly, we don't get an answer in that sort of way from this text. But we do get an answer in some regard. What made James willing to die in such a way? Why did James willingly go to death? Is it that God doesn't care? Did he die because God doesn't care or he wasn't able to save him? No. 
The death of James is not evidence of God's powerlessness or apathy for his church, but is a loud declaration of his steadfast love for his king. He knew the king of kings. James knew the risks of following Jesus. Jesus had told him earlier in Matthew 20 when he told James and John that they would drink the same cup that he drank, namely death. James knew the cost. He knew what was coming. And so why was he willing to pay it? He knew the king of kings. For the king of kings, Jesus Christ defines what it means to be a real king. A real king doesn't hoard his power, but gives it away. A real king doesn't lift himself up, but lowers himself down. He is strong enough to be weak. A real king doesn't prize power, but prizes his people and uses his power to serve them. Herod robed himself with glory and made the people fall at his feet for food. And Christ took off his royal robe and tied it around his waist and washed the feet of fishermen and tax collectors and sinners. Herod struck fear in his people's hearts through coercion and Christ woos his people into trust and submission with a love that melts their hearts. Herod crowned himself with honor. Christ took off his crown and took on another one made of thorns. Herod enthroned himself and Christ got up off his throne and in the end took on another throne, one made of wood a cross, and on it he bore all of our shame, all of our sin, all of our failure, all of our pride and egocentrism, all our Herod-like power, hunger, and self-centeredness, and he laid it in the grave, and the Father has set his king on his holy hill, high above all other kings. That's why Jesus, that's why James was willing to drink this cup. Because Christ had drank the cup before him on his behalf. Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus serve his people in such a way? Because he loves them. And he loves you right where you are today. He loves you. This beautiful servant king is for you. He's not far off and distant like Herod was on his throne. He's come to us. He's with us. He's done all that needed to be done to be with us. He fights our battles. And he invites us to follow him in his lowliness, forsaking our Herod-like pride and our delusions of being strong enough, good enough. And in lowliness, we find his favor. When we fall on our faces, God opposes the proud like Herod, but gives grace to the humble. He honors those that drop the facade of folly, the pursuit of praise, and open up their hands in trust, knowing that he longs to give us what we desire and what we need. He says, you don't have to pray like the people of Tyre and Sidon. Come to me and pray for the spectacular Pray for your daily bread, knowing that I am able and I long to give it to you. 
And that's what the disciples did in response to Peter's imprisonment. And that's what we're invited to do as well. Do we open up our hands like this? Do we believe that our servant king is eager to give us what we need? And that that which we desire, not for his own gain, but for ours. And do we pray for our city and for our church in a way that we actually believe that he can transform us? The story closes with testimony that the word of God increased and multiplied through the sacrificial love of Christ and his supreme power that desecrated Herod. They had heard about the martyrdom of James, the sacrificial love, the rescue of Peter. And the gospel increases in the same way that it did after the martyrdom of Stephen. So the call for us today is to open up our hands, open up our eyes to see the King of Kings in a way that he is so unlike the fallen rulers of our day. He is so unlike us. His natural impulse is to serve and to give up his power, to get off his throne, to wash our feet. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you are a king of kings. You are the king that reigns over all things, and you delight to give us what we ask. We want to know you. We want to love you. We want to respond to you. We want to see you move in power in our midst. Lift up our eyes today to see you and to love you. Amen.